we can continue this conversation. Um, all right. In theory, we should be live. But where in Canada are you from? Yeah, I grew up in, in Windsor, Ontario, just a small town, actually, just outside of Windsor. Uh, so I uh, did my uh, undergrad degree in University of Waterloo in Canada. Oh, okay. Okay, sure. Yeah, so that's how you became familiar with snow. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, we on the West Coast have just like no idea what this stuff is. So, and we'll yeah, never... it's pretty special. White stuff comes down from the sky. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. Turns out to be prevalent in the solar system. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we'll never actually. I say that, and yet we just had the worst winter. We had must have had four feet of snow where I live, which is completely unusual. So. um yeah. So every now and then, you know, we do get mostly we have snow free winters mostly, but then every now and then we get punished and reminded that, yes, indeed, we are Canadian. And this is this is what this is what we need to expect. So excellent. Yeah. Um, OK, so so who are you? What do you do? Yeah, my name's uh, Jason Hofgartner. I'm a planetary scientist and I study um, I like to focus on active processes. So things that are actually you know, happening today, we can see them uh, with our spacecraft, uh, what's happening, uh, and basically for the geology of worlds in the distant solar system. So uh, places that uh, tend now to be known as ocean worlds because they have subsurface liquid water oceans under their surface. Uh, they're also called icy satellites uh, or Kuiperbelt objects. And these are places that have, um, you know, a lot of similarities to the Earth in terms of uh, geology, things going on, you know, like there's rain on Titan, and there's uh, eruptions on Triton, uh, but very different chemistry. It's all, all much, much colder, uh, even colder than the Canadian North. <laughs> yeah. Now, you came to my attention because you used sort of one of my favorite keywords, which is Triton. Um, but you've since like done another paper that I just saw as well. So there's like a theme definitely to to what you're working on. So so let's start with Triton and then we'll kind of shift things around. Sure. So I think that NASA made a horrible mistake when they decided not to fund their Trident mission and instead funded two spacecraft to go to Venus and not none to Io and none to Triton. And the correct answer, of course, was all four that you launched them all right. on Falcon Heavy, save the money, double the missions and launch to all of them, especially Triton. Why is Triton such a fascinating world? Right. Yeah. Triton uh, really is a special world. And um, and like you said, it's too bad that we're not going, but, you know, we'll keep trying. And uh, and part of there's many reasons why Triton is, is really fascinating. But, you know, perhaps one of them uh, and my favorite is that um, it is very young in terms of its surface. And so, like I just said, uh, you know, researching active processes, it's very clear that there are uh, things that are um, uh, probably ongoing today, but certainly have happened recently that have refresh that surface and, and what those processes are. Um, some of them are probably things that are analogous to those occurring on Earth. And some of them are probably, um, you know, rare or possibly even unique to Triton. Uh, and so it's, it's got this very young surface. And, and the reason that we know it's so young is, is primarily because uh, it has uh, very few impact craters. And so, you know, in, things and throughout the solar system are always getting impacted, uh, you know, getting pummeled by asteroids or uh, comets, that sort of thing. But uh, but then they leave this scar on the surface. And then if you have resurfacing, it, it wipes it away. And so Triton has very few of these impacts. It's also a very bright surface. Mm. And um, 
that that brightness is uh, is generally indicative of a young surface that's true on the Earth and just kind of true uh, empirically, you know, by observation, what we've learned everywhere. Um, you know, if, if a surface is just kind of left left alone, it will eventually gray uh, by, by processes in the solar system. So um, so so Triton is is very young, like I said, and then it's it's also, you know, kind of got this unique flavor in that there's a lot of nitrogen on its surface, nitrogen ice. So, you know, 80% of the air we breathe is uh, nitrogen. Uh, out at Triton, it's so cold that, that that air is primarily frozen onto the surface as ice. A little bit in the atmosphere, it does have an atmosphere like our and, uh, and then Triton has this very fascinating history that uh, it, it is uh, almost certainly a captured uh, satellite or moon of Neptune. Uh, and uh, that would make it the largest of any of the captured moons uh, in the solar system. And it is uh, probably originally from the Kuiper belt. So if you think like, a, like an object just like Pluto, uh, that basically, you know, that was uh, captured by Neptune and, and brought into orbit around Neptune, then that's Triton. And, and that capture process has probably dramatically affected its history. It's probably the primary reason or one of the primary mm. reasons for this very young surface. Uh, and it probably uh, has resulted in this subsurface liquid water ocean. Uh, that's still to be confirmed by, you know, probably future mission observations, but that's certainly very likely that there's an ocean under there. Uh, and so there's just a lot going on uh, on Triton. It has, you know, this atmosphere, like I mentioned with hazes, uh, and so, so, you know, going there, there's just so many things that we could learn. We could understand these processes, this geology that resurfaces, um, you know, how this works. We might be able to, to um, glean, it would be tough to do, but we might be able to learn some things about how it was captured. And, uh, and that capture event may really be related to some of the early history of the solar system. And so, um, so there's a lot there. And then, of course, you know, oceans, um, liquid water oceans, there's the potential for astrobiology. Uh, certainly, you know, one of the, the better candidates to look. And so that makes it interesting as well. So it's uh, definitely a rich target. Voyager 2 made its flyby of Neptune and its moons back in 1989. I remember uh, vividly, yep. I was sort of in my final year of high school um, and uh, it was the newspaper of the day. Um, and subsequently, one of the things that Voyager saw is it imaged the planet We've seen, and it sucks. Like the only picture, good picture that we have of Neptune was taken back in 1989 for a few days, and then that's it. And yep. we all have to use those same pictures again and again and again. And they're mediocre. They're fine, but we could do better. Um, <laughs> but, but in imaging the various moons of Neptune as it went by, it was able to see a hint of geysers at Triton. And, and like, correct me if I'm wrong, but is this the first place that we saw geysers in the solar system? Was that was at Triton? Uh, that was the first place that we saw icy geysers. Uh, so um, others were seen on Jupiter's moon Io, uh, probably more like you know, yeah. kind of like volcanism erupting on the Earth. Uh, but that was the first time we saw it from an icy world. That's right. Yeah. And and what was the evidence for for these geysers? Yeah, so the the primary evidence is is direct imaging uh, in in the images that you mentioned, which actually you know it was in 1989, but it was using 1970s uh, cameras and technology yeah. just for even you know to drag that out even more. Um, but uh, what what was seen in, in those images was uh, basically a, um, a a plume, so a, a column of dark material rising up above the atmosphere, 
And that went up about eight kilometers and then uh, it turned over and then for about a hundred kilometers in length, there was this dark material that was essentially a cloud uh, that was being, you know, that plume being blown over by the wind. And then uh, in two, in different images, there were several different images of those regions taken. You can see using what's called parallax, which is basically just, you know, like with your, for example, your two eyes use parallax to, to perceive depth. So he was using the same type of um, physics to be able to see that this, this material was above the atmosphere. And, and like I said, it's about eight kilometers above. And, uh, and there's some evidence in some of the images that it also cast shadows uh, down on the surface. And so we could see that this was, this was something that was in the atmosphere. And, and you know, like I said, in, in the kind of um, non-optimal images, we can see this evidence for a plume rising up. It's not you know, visually as, as great as you would like, but it's there. And, and so this is something that has to be maintained because there are winds in that atmosphere. And so uh, hmm. this must be something that's, you know, going up there now. And so is that unique I, then? Yeah. I mean, when I think about Enceladus, I think about the tiger stripes and they're yeah. just blasting water ice out into space. I think yeah. about Europa and I don't think there's much of an atmosphere there, but you're talking about these plumes interacting with an atmosphere on Triton. Is that unique mm -hmm. in the solar system that we know of? Uh, that we know of. Yeah, exactly. So, um, uh, like you said, you know, Enceladus and, and I mentioned the eruptions on Io, those are uh, quite a bit thinner atmospheres. Triton's atmosphere, I should say, it's about one one hundred thousandth as uh, dense or high pressure as ours. And so it's, you know, this is a very thin atmosphere. This is much thinner than you would get at the top of any mountain on the Earth. Um, but it is it is still an atmosphere that, that moves things around and you have these plumes erupting. Uh, out, out from there, yeah. The, the geysers, the, the, what I call plumes, are almost certainly uh, from some type of eruption event. So, how do they compare then to the other cryovolcanism that we're familiar with in the in the solar system? Great question. Yeah, and and unfortunately, we don't really have the answer. We should uh, set but, a spacecraft. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That's, yeah. yeah that, that, what a great idea. Too <laughs> um, bad other people didn't think of that. <laughs> um, so they're, they're clearly different uh, from, okay, so Io, I've mentioned a couple times already, Io has what we think of as silicate or, or like a rocky type of volcanism. So that's, you know, in large part, kind of very generally much more similar to the earth. Enceladus, you mentioned, has these ice volcanoes erupting, blasting out from its south pole, you know, that are going on for at least decades, uh, possibly much longer, uh, putting out a fair amount of material. Uh, on Triton, we don't know what these plumes are made of. So they could be icy, uh, like, and by that I mean water ice, just like at Enceladus. Uh, the amount of material actually coming out of each of them is roughly similar to the whole of Enceladus. So all the jets of Enceladus combined uh, in each of those plumes. Uh, or it could be um, nitrogen uh, in, its, in its ice form. So it's still ice, but you know, nitrogen being very different from water uh, chemically and, and geologically. And, uh, and it could be the nitrogen that, that does that. And so um, there is a long-standing hypothesis uh, that was the, actually the, one of the originals of, of how these plumes erupt. It's, it's quite fascinating. So let me take a minute to describe it. The idea is you have a nitrogen ice layer, uh, so solid nitrogen ice, that's quite transparent to sunlight. Um, and so the sunlight goes down through, no problem. Uh, lower down, it gets absorbed. And then it wants to re-emit in the infrared. Uh, but that infrared gets uh, stuck on the um by the nitrogen ice because it's much more opaque so this is a greenhouse effect this is basically a solid state greenhouse effect it's like literally you know how greenhouses uh, work with glass uh, how carbon dioxide works in our atmosphere 
And, uh, and that heating beneath that nitrogen ice, because nitrogen is so volatile, if you give it just the tiniest amount of energy, it wants to do interesting things. So it, that little bit of heating causes the nitrogen basically to turn into vapor underneath the ice, and that vapor pressurizes, and then it explosively erupts into the hmm. atmosphere. So that's a, one of the hypotheses for, uh, for these plumes. It, it was the leading hypothesis for a very long time. Uh, we have argued that that's probably not, um, it's probably not the best to consider the leading hypothesis. It's probably much more equal footing with an Enceladus, Enceladus type of eruption where you kind of have you know, a more analogous to like an earth volcanism where you have heating from below, uh, making molten, maybe you know, melting liquid that's rising up and exploding upwards um, is another hypothesis. And, uh, and so we think both are, are very good hypotheses um, and, and either could really explain Triton's plumes. Um, and so it's, it's exciting. I should, I should add while we're talking about them that you know, we observed two. Uh, I think there is really compelling and most people would agree for six of them in the images, although we're not as, as uh, definitive about that. And then there is uh, streaks on the surface all over the Southern hemisphere that uh, more than a hundred of them that are very likely kind of that cloud that I mentioned, that trailing cloud that was windblown. When the eruption turns off, it probably just settles down to the atmosphere and forms those streaks. And so there's evidence for hundreds of these things. And so um, Triton, in fact, may be a very uh, active world in terms of these eruptions, um, you know, among, if, if not even the most eruptive of the solar system worlds. So. so if I kind of understand this, then there could be pockets of nitrogen that are sublimating and blasting this material out as whenever they get warmed up to a certain point, or there is actually a, a sub ice ocean kind of like Europa and Enceladus that is connecting to the surface via these these geysers and they're and they're sort of translating this you know this material out into space that's right yeah, yeah you've got okay. that right and there's, there's even a third hypothesis that is is much less well studied but uh the idea there is that uh it's nitrogen again but rather than being powered by you know the sunlight coming down in you have uh triton's internal energy uh the same type of thing that might power the ocean beneath and, uh, and that energy is, is leading to convection. So it's causing, you know, the nitrogen material to come up warmly. And then uh, when it cools, come back down. Hmm. Um, just, you know, when you make oatmeal in the, in the oven or, or how on the stove or how, you know, the sun works. Um, and when that warm nitrogen comes up, uh, it may uh, explosively erupt as well. And so that's uh, a third hypothesis that I think is still um, plenty viable, but definitely needs more, more study. But that's also really interesting because it allows for material to shift between layers. You could have some kind right. of convection. There was actually a, a paper that just came out today. I don't know if you saw this, that that it's possible that that oxygen is being pulled into Europa from the surface down to the subsurface ocean, that there's systems that are pulling material back down as well. Right. And that gets even more interesting when you think about, say, uh, Titan because then you've got this really nice layer of hydrocarbons on top and then you've got the ice and then you've got the ocean and a real need to push organic molecules down into the ocean where maybe really interesting things can can happen. Um, so it, it sounds like I mean, obviously more evidence is necessary, but it but it it feels now with all of these different worlds, you're seeing different mechanisms doing different things that that it's not just ocean ice 
geysers that there's a lot more interesting processes that could be could be happening depending on the world depending on its environment is that right that's absolutely right yeah these these worlds um you know i think world is a, is a good term it's that's what a term i like to use because i think it kind of conveys that you know they have this this character or personality to them that there's a lot going on and they they all have similarities but they you know they have their their unique intricacies as well and uh yeah it's it's definitely not simple like you said that's that's clear uh, at this point you know uh, all the details of how it works that's what we're still working on and, and it's gonna keep you know busy for keep me busy for the rest of my life i think because there's yeah. such richness there but uh but yeah there's definitely definitely lots of things happening and one thing that I haven't mentioned yet is that Triton does have methane in its atmosphere as well, and as ice on its surface. And methane, of course, is the most simple of organic molecules. You know, it's just one carbon atom, uh, but then it's a precursor to forming other organics. And so, you know, what role it has in terms of, uh, you know, an organic um, cycling on Triton and whether or not it, it, you know, is interacting with liquid water uh, is definitely a very interesting question as well. So then... You know, based on the, our current understanding, I mean, I think, you know, it, for the longest time, the focus was on Mars. Let's send spacecraft, let's search for life on Mars, you know, back with the, the Vikings. And then this, that was inconclusive. And so the shift was, let's follow the story of water on mm -hmm. Mars. Continuing and it's, it's still part of the focus, but it, it's clear that there are other worlds that are worth pursuing as well, uh, to varying degrees. And you know, we've already mentioned some of some of the highest priority ones, uh, Europa, Enceladus, uh, Titan and Triton, I would say are among among the top of those. Ganymede. Worlds. Yeah, Ganymede is a great spot. Ganymede yeah. probably a much thicker ice shell. So maybe not quite as compelling, but certainly, certainly it's it's worth visiting for sure. And um, and yeah, it has, you know, really kind of opened the door uh, to um, to considering the possibility of astrobiology on on these worlds and you know further out into the solar system beyond what is maybe typically called the habitable zone right where you have liquid water at the surface you now have liquid water not at the surface of these worlds but deep beneath um, and you know on earth there is life in the deep ocean and so you know it begs the question is there is there life down there and and we don't we don't know the answer but but we can uh we can you know get closer towards it with with spacecraft and uh and possibly you know approach that answer and so that that is certainly uh something that nasa is thinking about and you know since you asked about kind of astrobiology and where it's going it's it's um it's good to say then that the uh, planetary science and astrobiology community has just basically just finished a process known as the decadal survey uh if you're familiar with it where basically once a decade, the community um, has a committee that um, essentially looks at some of the highest priorities uh, for planetary science and uh, and going forward in the next decade. And uh, and our timing today is interesting because that that decadal, the next decadal survey is expected to be released imminently. As oh, really? In, you know, probably a month. Um, huh. I mean, I knew and, the astrophysics one had come out, but I didn't realize the uh, the planetary one yep. was was due. Yeah, the planetary one is is very eminent, and so uh, it will, you know, uh, in in many hundreds of pages address the question that you're talking about, which is, you know, what are the priorities and how have they shifted with the discoveries of the last decade, um, and it, you know, it will continue to be Mars, of course, but it will, it will also continue to be uh, these other ocean worlds and, and icy satellites that we're talking about, and, and it's going to be very interesting to see um, to see that document and, and what it suggests. Now. 
you know, on the channel, when we talk about some of these ideas and some of these missions and stuff, we joke about, you know, a rich aquatic environment, European, you know, European whales, space whales, and so on. But practically speaking, how nutrient rich and energy rich is the environment under the ice on some of these worlds compared to, say, the subsurface you know, the deep sea vents and things like that here on here on Earth? Yeah, yeah, great question. Um, so, you know, Enceladus, the uh, geysers that we've mentioned, they're erupting outwards, uh, and they are almost certainly sourced from this ocean underneath. Uh, you know, maybe not directly, there may be a lot of uh, change and transfer happening in between, but the original source is probably that ocean. And, and there is plenty of, of nutrients in there, the Cassini spacecraft flew directly through that plume, didn't just image it, but actually through it, Flew, flew, flew through it and, you know, essentially sniffed the, the molecules and it discovered, you know, all the types of basic building blocks that we would think of um, and nutrients, you know, types of Earth's oceans. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, it wasn't really capable of, of seeing, you know, much more complex uh, compounds. And so they may or, or may not be there. Um, but certainly the, the building blocks, the, the simple types of uh, compounds and elements that are needed were there. And so, you know, there are differences from the earth in terms of, you know, the ratios of the different compounds and, you know, they don't all have exactly the same nutrients, but it's, you know, <laughs> overall, it's not crazy different between different oceans or lakes and oceans on the earth. And so, um, and so it, you know, it's clearly not nothing to answer your question. Uh, some yeah. places may, maybe even more nutrient rich, maybe too nutrient rich. You know, hmm. we don't know Europa's Europa's ocean, uh, another very high priority one. Uh, we have not you know, been able to, to do that type of uh, analysis that was done at Enceladus yet. Uh, maybe the, the mission that's uh, already planned and, and being built uh, for Europa called Europa Clipper will be able to do that um, if there are, if it does discover plumes there and um, it, could, it could be. So it's it's really the, exactly the type of question we're asking uh, with our research. And, you know, we have models and, and uh, different uh, different ways of approaching this question, but we don't really know the answer for for much else than Enceladus. And so that's why giving the observations would be great because, um, you know, other oceans may be more much more devoid of other material or maybe very rich in it. Um, and and so it's, uh, it's, it's a great, great question for research. Yeah. Um, so what would it take then to start to get some of these answers? You, you mentioned the Europa Clipper, we talked about the the Trident spacecraft that so far has hasn't gotten funded yet. Uh, there's the juice mission coming up from the European Space Agency. Are, are any of those equipped to give you the, the kinds of answers that you would be hoping to see? And I guess I'd like to what would be ideal if you know, obviously, I don't want to necessarily spoiler alert on the decadal survey, but um, sure. but what would what would get you the answers that you need landers? uh probes going into the ice blank check right what's it going to take right yeah well you know my so my research is focused on on these geologic processes and what's going on with the surface and so uh clipper and juice uh and trident would have you know are all gonna uh get me the answers that that i'm particularly interested in at least for the next step because uh you know they are are very capable modern really going to completely transform our understanding of these worlds um it is, you know, astrobiology is, is something that I'm certainly interested in and, and uh, aware of, but it's not exactly what I focus on. Yeah. But 
Uh, I think I think those spacecraft are possibly capable. If, you know, if there is a uh, plumes erupting uh, like at Enceladus, then then they are certainly capable of of flying through them and measuring their contents uh, even more so than um, than Cassini was. And so, uh, depending on what they find, you know, it's it's not inconceivable that there were life in there that they would that they would find it. Uh, if not, then um, they might get us one step closer. And you know, it's just it's kind of uh, a question that we just got to kind of keep going. And um, you know, they're probably they're they're not they weren't designed. Let's put it that way. They weren't designed for detecting life, right? That's not their their primary purpose. And so, a future mission to answer your question is is needed. And um, and you know, generally, in in the way these uh, exploration of these worlds goes, is that you uh, study them with telescopes, you fly by them, you orbit them. And then you land on them, and so that's kind of the, the natural next step. Um, and, and then you the sample return, you and then do sample return. Yeah. And, yeah. and in the case of you know these places, maybe maybe dig down, right, or dig yeah. down very deep, or kind of get way down there into the ocean. Uh, and so you know, the bigger the sample you get, and the more closer you get to the, the environment that's probably habitable, the, the better your chance of you know determining what's what's actually in there. And, so, so the answer to your question is is, is more missions, uh, which is often answered. <laughs> right. Yeah. But uh, but Clipper and Juice are you know really wonderful that are really going to take us a big step forward and and you know maybe and certainly will, will give us lots of surprises. It is interesting though. You know, we, we talk about the fact that you're you're focused on geologic processes, and yet you're looking at ice. You know, when we think of geology, we think of rocks. And, That's right. and and yet you've got these worlds where everything is kind of phase shifted one one step. How are how is how are ice like rocks? But how are how does it work differently than rocks? Yeah, yeah, great question. Um so uh, at these temperatures, it's it's actually a lot more like, and by these temperatures, you know, I mean, you know, like well below 100 degrees Celsius, you know, way out there. Um, uh, in the case of um, Triton, the surface temperature is something like 40 Kelvin. So, you know, it's like minus 200, more than minus 200 degrees Celsius. It's very, very cold. Um, water ice itself is is actually much harder than, than snow or glacial ice uh, is on the earth at that temperature. And so it is actually a lot more like, like rock. Uh, and then the, the way it behaves, you know, geologically is 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 um, is different in its details, but but basically similar in in the overall physics. So you know, if you smack it with an impactor, it's going to form a, a crater, and the, the shape of that crater is going to be a little different, but it's going to form a crater. If you um, have the pressurized water underneath, and you crack open that ice sufficiently, uh, you may be able to you know have the water come out like it does at Enceladus, and um, if you uh, you know are on Titan, you have uh, methane that's actually in its liquid form at the surface there because the right it's very similar to the Earth uh, in this way, but different chemistry, different temperature, and uh, and so we're trying to understand you know how that um, how that all works. You know, on, on the case of Titan, for example, you have um, you know about the equivalent of one meter of liquid. Uh, if you were to cover the whole surface, you'd have about one meter of liquid. Uh, if you were to take that for the Earth, it would be one kilometer. Uh, and if you were to take all the water in Earth's atmosphere and, and turn it into water, it would be about as thick as your thumb. Or if you took all the atmosphere on Titan and, and you know, turn it into liquid, it would be about 10 meters. So it's more wow. in the atmosphere than in the liquid. And on the Earth, it's the opposite. So you know, they have evaporation and rain and clouds in both cases. 
but how much does that change because of those kinds of differences uh, is, is something that we're learning and that's really interesting to, to see. But here on Earth, with plate tectonics and things like that, the rocks themselves are made of aluminum and iron and silicon yep. and oxygen and all of these various elements. But but on, say, a place like Triton, it's hydrogen and oxygen. The chemistry simplifies. How how does the chemistry affect the geology? That's right. Yeah. And it, it's a very rich chemistry, just like on the Earth. And so, um, you know, it's uh, it, there's there's so much going on, but it, but it affects it in, in ways in, in many, many ways. I mean, it's it's there's so, so, such a broad question. But, you know, like if we go back to Triton's plumes as an example, that first hypothesis that I mentioned of this solar driven greenhouse effect causing eruptions, there is nothing like that. Uh, that's a good analogy on the earth. Right. And so it's affecting the geology, you know, the, the chemistry of, of how nitrogen can have this greenhouse effect is affecting the geology in the sense that it's creating an entire new process that can occur on Triton. And, um, and so, and so, and then of course, you know, that eruption affects geology because it's, you know, pushing this material into the atmosphere that can get blown around. And then some of it falls down onto the uh, surface around it. Uh, you know, it's causing this cycling of material. Um, and so it, uh, it, it can lead to entirely new processes. It can lead to processes that are different in their details. And it can lead to some processes that occur on the earth uh, don't occur on, on these places. So, you know, and, and Enceladus and Europa, like we mentioned, don't have an atmosphere. So they don't have, you know, rain. They don't have rivers eroding the surface. They don't have uh, probably glaciers that are that are cutting through it. Uh, so the geology there is much more dominated by tectonic effects, not not plate tectonics, but you know cracking and, and uh, fracturing of the surface. Um, and so it's 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 kind of it changes. You know, on, on Earth there's a constant competition between all the different geologic processes, right, building mountains and then eroding them down, and it, it changes it changes the the equation of you know which processes are winning and which ones are dominant and that sort of thing. But as you get colder, like say, as you go out to Pluto, then mm -hmm. suddenly then then you almost go to another phase change. Now the nitrogen is forming glaciers and moving and shifting. And, That's right. And so on. So so do you sort of see how is it almost like like places like Triton, like the middle solar system is almost like the tropics of ice. And then as you get out to Pluto and beyond, then it changes again. There's definitely there's definitely a gradient across the solar system, you know, and that's part of what makes each of these places, you know, have their unique flavor. Um, Pluto has uh, glaciers and it's it's nitrogen, and so you know, an, an interesting example of how that changes the geology. You know, our glaciers on the Earth, they are water ice uh, on top of rock, and when the water melts, it uh, sinks to the bottom of the glacier and and you know helps the glacier move, it helps erode things. Um, Nitrogen on Pluto is uh, on top of water ice, and that that nitrogen is more dense than the than the water ice it's on. So on Earth you have you know water ice that's much less dense than the rock it's on, and on Pluto you have uh, nitrogen that's on that's more dense than the ice it's on. So that means it's actually trying to kind of not only like just flow like the Earth on the Earth like by gravity, but because of density it's actually trying to get underneath that ice. Huh. And then what's interesting is that if you ever did, ever did get melt, for example, uh, in those glaciers on Pluto, 
that liquid nitrogen wants to rise. Water, water is actually rare in that, you know, ice floats. Most materials, if you freeze them from the liquid form, the solid sinks. So on the earth, you have the water go down at the base. It, it does kind of this weird uh, erosion. It cause, causes the glacier to, to move more. On Triton, you might have, on Pluto, you might have, you know, that the liquid moves up to the surface, does things on the surface, doesn't actually change how it's interacting at its base. Uh, completely different type of um, physics, but, you know, Glacier doing interesting things in both cases. It's a uh, very, very interesting, interesting difference. And do you think that, like, if you got colder, like, you know, one of the ideas for, say, Oumuamua was that it was a nitrogen rock a nitrogen asteroid as opposed to so if you got even colder to the point where things like i don't know hydrogen are starting to freeze what could geology look like at that point probably very different again right um yeah and um so so nitrogen may form kind of the one of the limits in our solar system or certainly what we've explored with spacecraft um uh, a hydrogen world, you know, might be hard to do because because hydrogen is so light uh, that you know basically even given the tiniest amount of energy, um, it may not stick around. And so the idea of like a, a hydrogen glacier forming on a world um, is fascinating. I mean, maybe it occurs in some extremely distant realm from from stars. Um, but it, it may only be very short lived because like I said, you know once once you give the energy, the hydrogen may just disappear. Um, but, uh, it's an interesting question. Yeah. yeah. And it's good. It, it's a good question to know, like, is nitrogen kind of the limit for this type of thing? Cause yeah. we're at 40 Kelvin. It's, it's, you know, minus 230 Celsius. Um, there's not much more things that are much more. Carbon monoxide is, is kind of with, um, high, uh, nitrogen. So that's, that's another interesting question or, or part of what we were talking about earlier, you know, the differences in geology it's, it's essentially exclusively H2O water, you know, there's certainly a little bit of organics and dust and that sort of thing mixed in, but it's basically H2O. Uh, and so it may be actually that on Pluto, there's this bit richer kind of variance and change. And a uh, similar idea for Titan is that the liquid at the surface is liquid methane and ethane. And so, um, you know, they're probably a much more uh, balanced mix between them. So on the earth, you have fresh water and salt water, but salt water is you know, still almost almost exclusively water. It's like one percent salt. Uh, on Titan, you have much bigger mixes, and so what does that do? Interesting geologically. Yeah, uh, it's yeah. Really fascinating what it, what it mean. And even you know, when I think about say even lava on Earth, um, we get like the viscosity of the lava depends on the on the, I guess the chemistry of the rock that went into it. And the and that will sort of define the temperature and define whether you get like the crunchy, uh, uh, like the stuff that kind of looks like rolling boulders, or you get the very soupy stuff um, that flows quickly. Do we think that maybe there's a similar situation going on with different chemistry and the different kinds of cryovolcanism? Do you ever get like? lava flows or are they all just sublimating directly um good question it's uh so there, there's not really been um a lava flow of uh you know an icy material that's been observed yet there's um 
there's evidence for some of these, you know, or at least they've been interpreted as past lava flows. But, you know, on Enceladus, we've seen the, the, the geyser, the eruption, it's, you know, blowing material uh, well above the surface. We haven't actually seen, you know, the equivalent of like a, a, a water kind of gushing out onto the surface and flowing out uh, like, like volcanism on the earth. And so whether or not that happens um, is, is still kind of a, a bit of scientific debate. Um, but, but, you know, the, the chemistry clearly affects it. Um, and uh, one thing that I haven't mentioned yet is that, you know, for, for example, uh, like, like I did say is that, you know, ice floats, right? And that's actually relatively rare that the water wants to go down, not up. And so that may actually make, make volcanism on all these worlds, although it, it does seem to occur much less prevalent than, than it did on the earth, because simply when you melt, you know, the equivalent of the rock, the crusty material, rather than wanting to rise like it does on the earth, it actually wants to sink because that's the behavior of water. And so uh, volcanism may be, may be less prevalent there. Hmm. Um, getting, getting, you know, access to uh, an, an actual like flow of water, right? water material would be really fascinating to do to be able to sample that and, and see, you know, how, what it's telling us about what's going on inside the volcano and inside the interior it, of that world. It feels like Titan is probably one of the only places that you might be able to see something like that just with the thick atmosphere and, and conditions. It doesn't sound like there's a lot of places where it would, wouldn't just sublimate off into space with the low pressure. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly, you know, the thick atmosphere allows you to actually um, cool it much quicker. And so um, it may be that it, you know, it stifles it, or like you said, maybe it, you know, because it, there's the pressure there, uh, it allows for that. So um, Titan is, yeah, certainly would love to see more and understand, understand that for Titan. Now, what if you go the other, you know, we've been talking about chemicals, stuff that we're very familiar with in terms of like ices and gases and things in various forms <clears throat> in colder, lower pressure environments. But what if you go the other way and look at some of these in hotter, more higher pressure environments, but it's still ice and, and things like that. I'm thinking about, you know, maybe deep down on some of these worlds where it is hot, but still very icy because like Enceladus is like mostly ice, isn't it? Um, and what about even like maybe some of the ice giants? Like, what do we think we would be seeing inside a place like, like Neptune or Uranus? Yeah. So, so my research is focused on these icy worlds, and that's why I'm, um, you know, talking about them. And we've seen processes on these types of icy worlds. Um, you know, it's possible that uh, there are like metal worlds. You know, uh, as you go much closer to the sun, um, rather than having ice there, there's metal and it's doing ge ge interesting geology things, and then. Uh, you know, as, as you go deeper down in some of these icy worlds, it, it gets more, more like the earth in terms of its rocky composition and its temperature, like you said, um, but it's not, you know, exposed to an atmosphere. So it, it could be very different, probably is very different from the earth, maybe much more analogous to the bottom of the seafloor on the earth. And, uh, and what's inside Uranus and Neptune? Well, um, that's certainly, I'm certainly not qualified for that to go to go there. But, uh, you know, it's a great question. And it's, it's certainly the type of things that people are researching. Yeah. And, and an orbiter to Neptune would help. Oh, yeah, I, I don't not... know that it would, you know, it wouldn't be able to probe like deep into Neptune necessarily, but it would certainly, you know, be able to study Neptune in, yeah. in wonderful ways. And Triton. Yeah, it couldn't. Triton. The point is, it couldn't hurt. We should send one. And the other moons and rings. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Very, yeah, lots to do there. So, I mean, 
in the last couple of days, we got the announcement that that NASA has confirmed 5000 exoplanets or that scientists have confirmed 5000 exoplanets with thousands and thousands of more candidates in the works. Uh, upcoming missions are going to be turning up tens of thousands of exoplanets, possibly hundreds of thousands. A few decades from now, we should probably know of millions of exoplanets. Many of these are going to be icy worlds or have moons that are icy worlds. How do you think that our understanding of, of what we're discovering here in the solar system extends out to the larger the, to the rest of the galaxy? Yeah, yeah, great question. Yeah, you know, the statistics suggest that there's probably, you know, like at least one planet for every star in the galaxy. And so if, if you take that, you know, statistically, although we haven't discovered them all yet, there's billions of planets out there. There's just there's tons and tons to be found for sure. I, I think I think what we're learning is that Earth is um, special, right? Is that is that uh, there there are a lot of things that are are like the Earth, uh, a lot of processes, a lot of geology that's like the Earth, but that are um, that don't make it quite the Earth. That you don't you don't see all of the processes that occur on the Earth occurring really on, on too many of these places yet. Uh, maybe we will find that in the future, but but we don't see that. And so it's it's teaching us that um, you know there's there's um, there's a lot of activity, lot, lot, just lots happening. You know, just it's not like these are dead worlds that are, have just been sitting there um, for for an eternity. But uh, there's a lot going on, and you know to to understand that diversity is I think going to be very interesting and. You know whether or not there are you know true twins to the earth or uh or earth is you know truly unique um is isn't you know this is the kind of question that we might have a much better answer to in our lifetime but we're but we're seeing that also that we don't necessarily need things to be exactly like the earth to do interesting things mm -hmm. right so it doesn't have to follow the same recipe as the earth to have volcanism it doesn't have to follow the same recipe as the earth to have rain it doesn't have to Follow the same recipe, you know, to have other uh, geology like glaciers, and so um, it, it's interesting to know too. Is, does it have to? Do you have to have exactly Earth-like conditions to have life or not? Um, you know, these are the types of questions that our solar system can can give us. And so there's a very wonderful complementarity between studying the worlds in the outer solar system and studying exoplanets because they're all kind of teaching us about, you know, what is the the varying and diversity of worlds and and how are they all teaching us you know about about the earth and it's clear that the earth is special and so yeah. um you know whether or not we find another one or not we, we should protect ours that's that's clear yeah yeah um especially the ice and the water um you know you know, we talked about this this announcement of 5000 exoplanets but james webb has come online with its ability to see into the infrared do you see James Webb playing a role in some of the work that you're doing? Um, yeah, for sure. I mean, James Webb is is very capable of studying, you know, many different objects, and and there are plans to look at, you know, all the worlds that we've mentioned so far, and so it's going to um, take great leaps uh, and bounds in terms of understanding chemistry, in particular, on a lot of these places, uh, and in terms of just kind of being able to. You know, and, and kind of like we talked about the decades between, you know, when we go to Triton and, and when we go back and, you know, the other some of the other worlds that maybe slightly, you know, more frequently, but still not frequent enough. James Webb allows, you know, not the same detail, but to 
monitor much more often uh, to look at these things. And so, so it's going to teach us a lot about these worlds. I don't have um, uh, particular plans myself for that facility at the moment um, mm. to be using it, but it's, uh, it's, you know, it's going to do wonderful things. And a lot of my colleagues are working on it for sure. You're going to be busy with Europa Clipper and, and juice images. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. And, and still, you know, analyzing a lot of this great data that we have uh, from Cassini and New Horizons. So Cassini at Titan and Enceladus and horizons that Pluto is, right. is keeping me busy right now. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's been, you know, of order five years since, since those missions ended, but uh, there's still tons and tons of data to be, to be worked through for them. What about the Titan Dragonfly, this idea of a nuclear-powered helicopter that's going to be flying around in the atmosphere of, of Titan? I mean, this is, a, this is a geology's dream, is to have something that can actually go up close to these rocks what are you looking forward to from dragonfly oh i'm very excited about it yeah it's going to be great um one of the things that i'm really interested in is that it's going to be able to you know not only get close but it's going to be able to look at these rocks from the side right so the spacecraft i mean we can do that sort of very partially by changing the angle but we're basically looking down because we're we're in these you know up in space looking down um dragonfly is going to be able to get up there and so when it when it finds a cliff it doesn't just have to look down the cliff but it can actually look on the side and, hmm. you know see what the character of that cliff is and so i'm really excited for for that aspect of it um especially because you know it's a helicopter that can fly it you know does it can like pick its height that it goes to and and you know it can can really explore it in, in a very interesting way so um what would that tell us fantastic like you said like if you if you could look at a cliffside yeah what would you be looking for, for as a geologist so what i want to see and what i predict will be there is is layering um and and that layering is is basically a, a record of the history right because each layer was kind of deposited at, at at time and then the next one got deposited on top it's kind of the general sequence and that is you know so key to understanding the history of the earth and the geology of the earth is understanding its, its layering its stratigraphy and um despite how important that is to the earth, it's actually not super common on other worlds. I mean, every world has layering to some degree, but they don't have, like, if you were to go, you know, to, to a, a mountainous area on the earth or any place where you can see lots of layering, we don't see that on very many places. It's, it's Mars, there's good evidence. There's, Mars has that. We know that now. But, um, but there may not be many others. Titan probably is one because Titan has this liquids at the surface. It has this rain and rivers. You know, so it's it's eroding material and depositing it and then eroding it back away. It's probably creating this layering. And so I think that's one of the most exciting things. Um, that's one, one of the things I'm excited about that mission, because it, could, it would tell us that there's this much more detailed record. Right. So we're trying to understand history and, you know, we're always learning about the history of, of these worlds. But if it has this layering, it's recording that that in hmm. much more detail in terms of time. And so um, it would be really exciting to be able to to kind of take that that step to looking at that level of detail you know at titan's history and to understand if it's had you know the types of things like we've had like variations that are maybe more equivalent to ice ages or you know different um different huge epics of geology um you know has it been just kind of titan the way it is now has it been like that throughout all of history or has it been dramatically different i think it probably more likely it's been dramatically different but we, but if we don't know how and that, now we could learn that yeah, that would be amazing. I sort of think about places, you know, when you drive and it's cut into a hillside and you can see the various layers that have been yep. laid down over yep. over long periods of time. And you're like, each one of those layers 
has a story of something changed and now you've got and so you can imagine situations on say Titan where you know maybe it ate a, a set of rings and you've got this deposit across the entire surface or maybe there was volcanism that was layering out or maybe you had some giant impact that splashed debris and you could just see these I mean, like a core sample would just be incredible but I mean just as you say a helicopter is is going a, a long way it's pretty it's pretty exciting to think about that um, absolutely so we talked about this idea of like 5000 exoplanets um, now James Webb and upcoming space missions and even some ground based instruments can start to analyze the atmospheres of these worlds. Next comes somehow studying some sense of the features on the surface of these worlds. How could we maybe get a sense of what's on the surface of some of these exoplanets from such distance? And I know that's not specifically your field. But you know, when yeah. I think about, you know, what kinds of instruments what kinds of techniques could give us a right. sense of what's on their surface geology wise, right? Yeah, it's, um, you know, certainly the type of questions we want to be able to answer. And, and so I think, you know, the, the way that progress will be made is by a combination of using things like James Webb to do observations, you know, that is going to really teach us about the atmosphere and then uh, modeling. Uh, and so, you know, using computer models to uh, predict based on, you know, everything that we can learn about those worlds, uh, what does the surface look like? And, you know, the more that we learn about our own worlds in our solar system that we can actually go and touch and see the surface, the better informed those models can be. Uh, and so I think that's where, where we're going to see progress, you know, during the, the era of, of this decade of, of the James Webb telescope um, is, is kind of this, um, you know, teamwork between uh, the observations and the modeling and, um, you know, seeing the surfaces of these worlds is, is a very, very, very challenging thing to do. And so that's still still a ways uh, into the future. Um, but that's, that's, I think, how we're going to do. And so it's a lot of kind of um, layer science, you know, built up that we're, we're, you know, we understand these things and we're putting them all together. And this is our prediction for what that surface is going to look like. Yeah. And, uh, and how can we test that? And how can we make that better? But if I could give you, say, a thousand planets and give you one pixel from each one, a spectroscopic yeah. data of one pixel of a thousand planets. Would that be interesting to you? Oh, yeah. I mean, of course, it would be interesting to know, you know, like what what I mean, the spectroscopy is very useful for uh, getting a sense of the composition. And so uh, it'd be very interesting, interesting to know. And of course, you know, finding liquid water is, uh, is a very interesting uh, question. So um, it's good. The, the, the question is, you know, how much do, how confident am, am I in what I've learned from those pixels? Right. And, right. Uh, uh, so I can understand, you know, the composition on average, which in the case of the earth, you know, we're roughly 70% ocean. And so, um, you know, would I, would I be able to know, is it primarily ocean or is there also continents there? And, and would I have a sense for, you know, is it like, you know, this one giant continent or the ocean? Um, or is there like, you know, many little pieces of land everywhere and, and water around? These are all the types of things that that you can't really answer well with one pixel, right. but as you get more then you can do better. Um, so, that's what's... so what if you would it be more interesting to get uh, 
time based pixels or multiple pixels like if i could give you those same <laughs> thousand planets but give you you know your data once a year yeah or would it be more interesting to give you four pixels of well of course the answer is is both right if you uh <laughs> if, you were, if you were to ask uh of course it's both. so so for me for the research that i do the time is is critical um, yeah so like we talked about at the beginning you know like i'm interested in understanding these things that are happening today and really you know learning what's going on from them by observing them and then you know being able to extrapolate that into the past uh and so for me time is critical because time is how you know we as humans we intuitively get that things are changing and, and so it, it's just there's just so much information that's rec recorded in that in those changes in time uh and so that's uh for me in my research of course interesting but um, like we talked about earlier too, is that, you know, there's this great diversity and, and great, you know, variance among all the worlds. And you don't, you don't get to appreciate that by, um, you don't get to appreciate that by just studying one, you know, many different times you need to, to really see all these different samples. And so, um, you know, there, there, there's just things that the more, however far we take our science, we won't predict, you know, these things happening until we actually go and see them. You know, there are, so many examples of, of things occurring on Pluto that that are you know related to what was expected and, and predicted, but just not not even you know at all, not even close to like the way it's actually on Pluto and, and you know things like the nitrogen glaciers, like we just we just you know maybe there was predictions for nitrogen glaciers, but we just didn't have like that sense for just how yeah. how they would work and what they would look like on yeah, Pluto. mountains. So really got to see them. Yeah, I mean even just seeing the pictures of those mountains. And if you had said, if someone said to you 10 years before New Horizons arrived and said, when you see the first pictures of Pluto, you're going to see mountains made of ice and glaciers made of nitrogen surrounded yeah. by an atmosphere. You'd be like, yeah. no, <laughs> no. Um, so, um, yeah, the, the way I like to think of it, just to, sorry to interrupt for a second, yeah, yeah. is yeah. that Pluto's moon Karen is a about as interesting as I expected Pluto to be, which, which is to say that Pluto's moon Karen is extremely interesting. And Pluto is just way more than, yeah. than I think anyone really truly thought. It's just, yeah, it's totally fascinating. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it's absolutely fascinating work. Um, so is there a mission to Triton in the new decadal survey? Can you give me a spoiler? Oh, I know. I don't know. I, I'm actually, so I'm not involved in that uh, decision. So, um, I, yeah, I don't even know. It's like I said, it's a, you know, it's a committee of, of people from the community and it's not, you know, uh, a entire community. It, it, as you can imagine, if you asked everyone to agree on what priorities there would be, it would be, you know, it could, uh, could be quite the argument and debate right. uh, that never be settled. Um, so I don't know, but, but, you know, I, th I think, I think what, what we can say is that it's likely that, um, that Triton's value will be recognized and whether or not it's, you know, that's enough to bring it all the way to say to a, a top priority or second priority, or, you know, a kind of a, a deferred priority to a future decade that, that we'll have answered yeah. in just a few weeks. Um, and, but I hope it is. <laughs> that's yeah. for sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that for the last decadal survey, obviously the big priority was Europa and just the understanding that these ice worlds are so, are so interesting, but I mean, the, the ice giants are chronically underexplored. And it's moving into criminal. So like at a certain point, a mission has got to go to either Uranus or Neptune, preferably Neptune because of Triton. Now is the time. So hopefully yeah. 
this round someone sets aside a few dollars to to finally go back it's weird you know like i said i was in high school the last time we got pictures and i'm not young so right time time yeah i mean it's extremely difficult to do and so you know that's part of the reason it, it speaks to how hard it is that no yeah. one has done it but uh yeah i think it's it's worth prioritizing. Well, we went to pluto so it's <laughs> and we've done it before so it's so it's still possible well jason absolutely fascinating work thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me if people want to follow your work what's the best way to do that yeah uh so the the uh Work that we talked about on on Triton is published uh, in the journal Icarus, so you know it's easy enough to find uh, on Google. And um, my uh, my publications uh, research are are all online, so um, I'm fortunate to have a relatively unique name, and so yeah. it's not so hard to to find me and what I've done. Yeah, there's a great list. I think on ResearchGate, a few places you can see a list of all the papers that you've been involved in. Some are are open access, others are are on journals, but, uh, you know, you've, you've been fairly prolific and there's a lot of really interesting science to, to read about. So if this is interesting to people, they should definitely, uh, read more of your, of your papers. I found them really fascinating. So, so thank you and, and good luck. Uh, let me know once the, uh, once the mission is approved, we'll talk again in a month, I guess. Okay. Yeah. I'll look forward right. to it. Well, right, thanks for having good. me. No, All right. So All right. Take care. Places. Bye. See you later.